This episode is brought to you by LMNT. Healthy hydration isn't just about drinking water, it's about water plus electrolytes. It makes sense, you lose both water and sodium when you sweat. Both need to be replaced to prevent muscle cramps, headaches and energy dips. But most people only replace the water. Why? Well, because since the 1940s we've been told to drink 8 glasses of water per day, thirsty or not. Drinking beyond thirst is a bad idea. It dilutes blood electrolyte levels, especially sodium, which leads to headaches, low energy, cramps, confusion, or even worse. This low sodium situation called hyponatremia is very common amongst endurance athletes, shift workers, and those who work outside in the heat, leading to thermal stress. The solution isn't to stop drinking water, it's to drink water plus electrolytes. This is where LMNT comes in. Just mix this flavor, electrolyte drink mix, into your water bottle and you're good to go. It's got no sugar or artificial junk, just electrolytes. LMNT has your electrolyte needs covered. Former research biochemist Rob Wolf and Keto Gains founder Tyler Cartwright and Louis Villasener formulated LMNT to provide the optimal ratios of sodium, potassium and magnesium for health, performance and energy. They also formulated LMNT to please your palate. Many different flavors such as orange salt, citrus salt, watermelon salt and many many more. Just head over to LMNT to find out. Or better still, go down to the show notes, click on the link, the sleep for performance link, to get um, to click on this and get your free promotional pack where you can get a taster pack and no questions asked refund policy as well. You don't even need to send it back. So check it out at LMNT in the show notes. Welcome back to the Sleep for Performance podcast. Today I am joined by Oh, I, Alex, it's, it's like every person that comes on the podcast, I can't pronounce your name. I can get your first name. I'm going to have a go at your second name. Agostini. Perfect. Wow. Did it. Not Very even there. And I'm going to, your co-author for the paper we're talking to, talking about today is Stephanie Sentofanti. Mm-hmm. Yep. Two in a row. Nailed it. <laughs> Nailed it. Agostini and Sentofanti. Are they Italian names or Greek names? Italian? Is They're it? Italian, yeah. Italian, yeah. Yeah. Excellent. So, Alex, uh, thank you for coming on today. Um, so, Alex, did we meet at World Sleep at your poster? Is that where we've met? Did I we meet you did. there? Yes. yes. Yeah, we have I, met briefly before. I thought that when I saw the name, I thought I had a chat to you at World Sleep a few years ago, just before the uh, the COVID thing happened. I don't know if anybody remembers that, but it was a brief lapse there for two years where we didn't yeah. really, couldn't do anything. Just a, just a blip. <laughs> a blip, Yeah. <laughs> And um, if memory serves me right, were you wrapping up your PhD at the time? Yes, I would have been. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that feels like a long time ago. But yes, I, that would have been roughly the time that I was finishing. Which isn't that long ago, but it feels like the eternity, doesn't it? it the last it couple of years. That was a very long time ago, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so um, was this paper part of your PhD or something separate? It's essentially a reworking of the introductory chapter of my PhD. So I did a a literature review to work out, you know, all of the ins and outs of what was going on with child and adolescent sleep um, to kind of set the scene for why I was bothering to look at what was happening with kids' sleep um, as part of my PhD. And so that was my first chapter that I then reworked into this paper. Yeah, and it's an excellent paper. Today we're going to be talking to Alex about her um, great paper that came out called Normal Sleep in Children and Adolescent Adolescents. Now, we often, or I often get asked a lot about, um, you know, pediatrics or adolescent sleep, and it's not an area I specialize in. And it's also a very emotive topic, I find, Alex, when you talk to people. Um, 
a number of years ago, maybe back about 2014 or 15, I was asked to, you know, kind of man a booth, I suppose, if you want to call it that, at um, a toddler fest uh, where parents wanted to come up and ask questions about sleep. And within about 20 minutes, I had regretted that decision (laughs) because people get so emotive about sleep. And to give people some examples, like I had um, parents come up and say to me, oh, my three-year-old, you know, he doesn't really sleep that well at night. And then I would maybe say about, you know, routine and showering and calming. And and nine times out of 10, the answer was, my kid's good. As if like it was a behavioral assassination. Yes. So that, um, that, that was the first thing I got. And the second thing that I got was people, as another example, was people who would ask me about co-sleeping. And I would talk about the pros and cons of it and cultural differences and so on. And then people came out with things like that their daughter would sleep. Like this woman told me that her daughter would sleep in the same bed with her and still does. And the daughter's in her 20s, so much so that the husband had to move out of the room when the kid was about 13 or 14. And I was like, that's not really healthy. And then she got mad at me. So these are like some of the extreme kind of behaviors that people talk or reactions you get when you talk about kids in sleep. And obviously that, that person now would become an adult. So, yeah. So do, do you do you ever get those sort of kind of challenges? I do. The The second one, less sorry, that was a bit of a, a shock to me. The yeah, that's really weird. Yeah. <laughs> um, the first one I, I do get, and I, I have to admit, I don't have children, so I'm not... Um, not here to give parenting advice and I'm not going to pretend that I'm an expert in parenting advice. Um, I've not raised children myself. I have two dogs. If we can relate those two things at all, which probably can't. Um, So, you know, it's not, I'm not here to give parenting advice. I'm here or my role, I think, is to give the best education that I can around some of the things that you can do and obviously everyone is different and you mentioned cultural differences as well and they're really important to consider but that's um, an interesting point Alex and just before we go on because I get the, I don't have kids either and I get the same mm-hmm. challenge or you don't have kids but that's like saying I don't go to an oncologist unless he's had cancer you know true. what I mean that's, that's, yeah that's my thing I I can explain the what happens when kids don't get enough sleep and I can talk from a, a kind of textbook yeah. perspective of all of my knowledge around the research that I've done but I don't have lived experience of raising a child and mm-hmm. I can imagine that if I'm you know quite a young female childless and I come to you or I come to a parent and I say you know this is how you should be raising your child even if I'm not saying it in that way if it's perceived that way that can be quite confronting yeah so, you know, I, I guess there is a slight difference in terms of a, a doctor because they would have, you know, I don't know how long an oncologist goes to uni or how much, um, you know, placement or whatever you call it they have to do to be able to treat Alex, cancer. Alex, it's not like you did a 16-week course. You've been at uni for probably a good True. seven to nine years as well. So let's not let's not downplay True. the journey to get a PhD, you know? Like it's it's still, what's like, the, what's like probably the fastest time, probably like seven or eight years is probably like the fastest you can do it between you do undergrad, honours and PhD in Australia. And yeah. in America, undergrad, yeah. master's and PhD, it's probably a good eight years. So let's not downplay the fact that it's not like we did a, you know, with all due respect to other people, it's not like we did a 16-week, you know, TAFE course to become like PhDs, you know. True. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I'm not, I'm just saying I'm not here to tell anyone how they should be raising their kids. Yeah. That being but said, let's just, let that being said, let's tell people what to do. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> all right. So we got our caveats out of the way. We got our gripes out of the way. Um, 
let's let's backstep a moment, Alex. What, why did you get interested in this area around children and sleep and adolescence? What what drew you to do, doing this research? It was kind of an accident, to be honest. I started off doing some work experience in the sleep lab at my uni during my undergraduate degree in the area of shift work and looking at, you know, all the issues with shift work and how that impacts health. And um, as part of that, I ended up doing some research assistant work on a project with adolescents. And apart from the fact that adolescents are much more fun to spend time with in the lab than adults are, and they're much more um, uh, amenable to being pushed around, (laughs) you know, you have to tell them when they can go to the bathroom and when they can do tests and when they have to go to bed and all that type of thing. And adolescents are much more used to that than adults are. So that made my job a little bit easier working with kids. Um, I started getting into doing some reading around adolescence and I worked out that we've got, I'm not going to say enough, but we've got quite a bit in the shift workspace and we know a, a decent amount around adult sleep, but the adolescent sleep space is really lacking and we don't know anywhere near enough. And so, you know, the combination of adolescence being a joy to work with with and you know the the lack of information that we have in that area kind of drove me down that path rather than continuing with shift work I have to admit Alex about maybe four months ago in our business we were engaged by um you know a sort of a high profile school here in Australia to work with them for um some work around teachers and and parents but predominantly around teachers and when you look at the literature on um children and what I call children basically from you know, kindergarten, primary school age, like I'll just use that category from like four to about 12. Mm-hmm. And then from 12 to 18 for adolescents, I was surprised how little there is out there. And although you say there's a little amount of resource scarcity in adolescents, there's even less in primary school kids. And, and the other thing then is on in teachers themselves in, in a school setting, there was even less again. And it was quite surprising how little there was. Like, I was really surprised. And I got one of the people in our team to go, this is what I found. Can you go and just replicate the same search terms and maybe then just change the search terms. Cause I was like, I had, I questioned myself so much. I was like, there must be more. And you're dead right. There is not, not much out there. And it's quite surprising. We are, it's getting better. It's, it's starting to expand into different areas and there are more and more researchers doing more adolescent and kids stuff, but generally there's not enough. We just tend to assume as researchers, I think that adolescents are little adults which is not it's not a fair assumption based on all the different stresses and all of the differences in their biological clocks that they're dealing with so we really need more research in that area yeah no it's it's definitely um it's definitely an area that is 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 needs more work as you said and i think what your paper has done here has given a really nice overview in this lit review form um of what's actually happening and i really enjoyed it actually um speaking to matt driller a few weeks ago I don't know if you want Matt at Latrobe. We do some work with Matt in terms of uh, sports and sports and performance research around sleep and performance and stuff. But I, I agree with Matt. I think these papers that are actually not systematic or not meta-analysis are actually nicer to read than more narrative general reviews. To tell more of a story, you can kind of, I don't know, you just got a little bit more, I don't know, maybe artistic flair. Maybe that's not what you should be talking about in science, but I find like systematic and meta-analysis really dry to read. And they're great papers and they're awesome. And obviously top of the kind of hierarchy and scientific, um, you know, papers that we should be looking at. But these narrative reviews are really good. So I really enjoyed it. Um, I'm glad. So let's uh, let's dig into this. So 
how would you classify the difference between children and adolescents in terms of sleep, like in terms of age ranges? What, 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 how can we kind of parse these out into two groups? It's kind of hard to do in terms of age differences and everyone has a different um, definition in terms of age ranges. So if you look at the World Health Organization, for example, they'll give you a different definition to someone else. But I think the really big thing for sleep is looking at puberty and when puberty starts Mm -hmm. to happen. And if you look at the different stages across puberty, you see lots of differences in sleep. So it's not... For me, it's not an age difference. It's where their pubertal development is. Okay, so the next question is, how do you assess where their puberty development is at that time? Where where Where's the start? Where's the stop? Like, Because obviously there's massive differences, isn't there? Like we had guys in late primary school like starting to shave and then other people looked like they were six years of age. Absolutely. Um, so uh, what we use in research is something that we call Tanner staging. So there are two ways that you can do Tanner staging. Um, You can either do it using a physical assessment so you can get the children looked at by um, a a doctor or you can do a self-report or a parent report um, survey essentially. And it asks questions about all of those sexual characteristics. So things like, you know, um, pubic hair growth and breast bud growth and all of that type of stuff. Um, And then you can section children off into five um, different Tanner stages. So one being completely immature in terms of their sexual development and five being adult-like in terms of their sexual development. Yeah. And so that's obviously, that's going to start kind of happening somewhere between the ages of like 10 to 12 to 13. But what about before that? Like, let's say um, primary school age kids, kindergarten to primary. What do they call it? Like, what do they call it in education? Like primary to K six or something they call it. Like, or K, kindergarten to K six is that or K to six something like that? I would be referring to them as children. Just children. Okay. Mm-hmm. So anything previous that would be children. And then just what Rhonda's topic? What? How would you differentiate then, if you know, between infants, toddlers, and babies? That's not really a strong area for me. Um, I, in one of the courses that I teach, I, we talk a little bit about how things change across infancy to childhood, yeah. but it, it's really not a strong area for me. It's more around, you know, there's different stages of sleep between infants and children, but it changes between the quiet sleep and um, active sleep into yeah. those non-REM and REM stages kind of at different ages for different kids yeah. so you know development is so individual to each child and there's always really big age ranges for when kids start to you know grow teeth and walk and all of that stuff and it's the same with sleep i think this message actually transfers or kind of just echoes true to our adults as well or with different groups like i know maybe about three or four years ago i would have been very much an advocate of like you know kind of group treatments you know a lot of my early research was on group treatments in athletes and it's obviously easy to do with teams and so on but the more I get into this work and the more I've been doing it, um, um, I really find that it is individualistic. Like you have to individualize your approach to it. And obviously like education or group stuff is good for getting the engagement. It's like a hook, you know, if people don't want to do individual stuff. But it's like I was giving the example this morning is that you wouldn't go and try to, you know, um, assess or treat cancer in a pop- general population with an education session. You would take blood work, you would meet with them, you would do other tests and so on. And I think you're kind of saying this again, coming from the opposite end, where I do more athletes and adults and shift workers, 
at a very early age, you have to look at these individual characteristics in people because this is what matters. It's not just this kind of group labeling that has to be applied. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a place for, you know, group treatments and group education. But yeah, when we're talking about really specific treatments, I think we have to be looking at individuals. Yeah. So on, on this topic, then, if um, if we're looking at sleep changes um, overall from, you know, babies right through to, to children into adolescents, how would you describe those big kind of changes, those big markers um, with people in general? going through those different phases what what changes with sleep or how is sleep how is sleep different and how does it change over that time yeah absolutely so the big one from infancy through to childhood is infants will sleep you know 16 hours a day and when we're really young we don't have any kind of differentiation between day and night so we just kind of sleep across the whole 24 hour period and there's lots of napping and all of that kind of thing once we get into childhood we start to sleep less once we start primary school, and this is a big, there's cultural differences in this, but once predominantly Western children start primary school, they lose that nap in the middle of the day because they don't have time for it when they're at school, um, which means that they get even less sleep because that nap goes away, but their nighttime sleep doesn't increase. So we lose some sleep there as well. Um, the big one and a really big area of interest for me being, you know, predominantly an adolescent researcher is the big change that occurs when we start talking about moving into that puberty stage is our biological rhythms delay. So I always hear from parents, my adolescent is really lazy and they don't want to get out of bed. (laughs) But the thing is, it's it's not that they're lazy. It's that their, their bodies are telling them that they need to sleep later. So they want to fall asleep later and they want to wake up later. And that, you know, that shift can be really predominant depending on talking about individual differences here. Some adolescents will only, you know, want to delay an hour or so. Some adolescents will want to delay several hours. And having to wake up early in the morning for school every day can be really hard when your biological clocks are telling you that you should still be asleep. For some kids, it's basically like, or for some adolescents, I should say, it's basically like waking up in the middle of their night Mm. to get to school one time. So that's kind of the really big one that I tend to focus on when I'm looking at the consequences of not getting enough sleep because we know that that sleep schedule or that school schedule really impacts the amount of sleep that adolescents can get. I think that's a great point that you make there, Alex. And I often say the same things talking to people individually or in group sessions or whatever it might be. I say to adults, you know, because they want to get up, you know, let's say the average person in their 40s gets up at like, I don't know, 6 a.m. or half five and go to bed like half nine and they, they complain about their adolescent kid wanting to sleep in. And first of all, I say, you know, what were you like as a teenager? And they always kind of giggle and go, oh, kind of the same. Yeah, well, it's not like they're trying to annoy you. It's not like they're purposefully doing it. And I often say to people, what if I woke you up at 3 a.m. in the morning and then brought you home from work at six, said, eat your dinner and get into bed at half six while the sun's out. Well, it wouldn't be very nice. It might be nice for a day or two. You get some sleep, but it wouldn't be very nice. No, it wouldn't be. And that's what it's like for adolescents getting up. They got mm-hmm. that sleep inertia when they have to get up at half five or six o'clock in the morning to go to school or to get a bus or to go swimming trend or something like this. This is this sleep inertia that you would have at three o'clock in the morning or half three. That's what they're experiencing as well. So have a bit of empathy. And when they're sleeping in the weekend, it's because they need it. They're not yeah. doing it because they're trying to punish you or to be lazy you know people i don't think for the vast majority of people they can actually 
you know, make themselves sleep to annoy their parents. I don't know if that's a biological process. <laughs> I don't think so. Considering yeah. how hard it can be to force yourself to fall asleep yeah. early for these teens, I don't think they can force themselves to stay in bed for half the day if they didn't need it. Yeah. I remember, I, I often think back to my teens. My dad used to be the same as well on a Sunday. You know, I could sleep until two o'clock in the afternoon. He used to call me lazy and this, that, and the other. But one, I was going to school all during the week. Mm-hmm. Two, I was playing for two rugby teams. And three, I had a part-time job at night as well. So come like Sunday, if there was no game on, you know, I would just like sleep for 12 or 14 hours because I was trying to make up that deficit. But shift workers do the same thing as well. Absolutely. And they, and they, they seem to think it's okay. But if it's a kid doing that, it's like, oh, you're lazy. It's a, it's a weird kind of cultural thing. That's a, as if kids should be just, you know, up at half five every morning and as in adolescent kids, sorry, mm-hmm. adolescents that should be sent, as, as, as they should be up and out at half five every morning. You know, it's weird. We have a different level of respect for shift workers because they are working, whereas yeah. we don't think that adolescents are really doing much other than going to school, obviously. So, yeah, it's a very different um, viewpoint that people have around whether you're working or whether you're just a kid. Yeah, I heard them people often say, well, oh, it's just because of gaming and smartphones. I'm like, well... When you were a teenager in the 80s and 90s, was there much of that around? No. Did you still play? Yeah. You know, it's like, what, what, what did you blame back then? Encyclopedias. Like, you know, oh, yeah, I was up reading an encyclopedia till four in the morning. It was awesome. No, you weren't. You just you have found it hard to go to sleep. <laughs> For those people listening, before there was the internet, a man used to come around and sell you big books called encyclopedias. And mm-hmm. that was basically the internet. So, yeah. So, Alex, um, with sleep architecture then, and when we talk about sleep architecture, we talk about like these sleep stages going from like, you know, a light sleep or stage one and two into deep sleep, stage three and REM sleep. Does that change across these age ranges? Do people get more REM at different phases or how does that work? The big one is, so I, I talked about active sleep and quiet sleep before when I was talking about infants. So um, infants don't have the same sleep staging that teenagers or children and teenagers and adults do. Um, So they basically have two main sleep stages. One's active sleep, one's quiet sleep. You can measure it in a multitude of different ways, but if you have a baby and you watch that child sleep, you'll be able to see the difference between active sleep and quiet sleep because they are essentially what they're named. So active sleep, their eyes are moving. They'll be, you know, their face will be twitching and all of that kind of stuff. And you can really clearly see that that is active sleep because the child is active. Um, And uh, infants will spend roughly 50% of their sleep period in active sleep and quiet sleep. And then as we start to progress into childhood and adolescence, we get those four main sleep stages. So the non-REM one, two, three, and the REM uh, sleep stage that you mentioned. And that kind of stays relatively similar um, across childhood and adolescence. There's not really big changes in that. Yeah. And what about um what about sleep pressure across the day and circadian rhythms? What what sort of changes occur in those? Yeah. So this is what I talked about before in terms of teenagers will have different biological rhythms to children and to adults. So the sleep pressure for a teenager across the day will develop or will build up more slowly than for a child or for an adult, which basically means it's harder for them to fall asleep until later at night. 
Um, but the dissipation of that sleep pressure is not significantly different to that of a child, which means they still need the same amount of sleep. So there again comes in that point of it, they need to be waking up later as well as going to bed later. So again, when you're waking them up early to get to school on time, you are not allowing them to get the amount of sleep that they need. So is it possible in Alex from a very young age, let's say I'm, I'm saying a well, a young age, when in terms of 14 or 15, with all these things that are piled onto teenagers these days with, you know, academic performance required, maybe doing another sport like swimming or playing rugby or soccer, whatever it might be, they might have, you know, music lessons, they might be trying to do everything, hang out with their friends. Is it possible for these people to get by on the less than the seven to nine hours recommended sleep? Can we start training people at a young age to be short sleepers? Is that possible? Not as far as I know. Uh, sleep is really important, um, particularly for children and adolescents because they're learning and they're growing and they're, you know, dealing with all of these extra pressures. So, for example, as an adult, I don't think that being in social situations generally is very stressful, but that's because I've already learnt all of those really important social skills that I needed to learn through my childhood and adolescence. So we're learning so many skills and so many things that you potentially wouldn't really think about as an adult that you, you don't necessarily link back to. I learned how to talk to people when I was growing up or, you know, I learned how to make friends when I was growing up in primary school or high school or whatever. Um, so sleep is super important for so many things and it's linked to so many other health behaviors as well. So we know that sleep is related to the type of food that we eat. So if I've had a really bad night's sleep the next day, I'm more likely to eat more food, but also more junk food as well. I'm less likely to do exercise. I, even if I do exercise, I'm less likely to do as much as I would normally do. I'm more likely to injure myself. I'm more likely to get into a car accident. I could go on forever. The, impacts of not getting enough sleep are massive so as far as I know there's no way to train people even if we started at a very young age there's no way to train them to not need sleep or to not need as much sleep yeah so many of these kids uh I keep saying kids so adolescents as you were saying um we kind of don't give them enough respect like we do with shift workers because we think oh they're just going to school you're having a great time I don't know if it's a great time, really. Like you said, well, I, didn't so, think so. <laughs> I, I didn't think so either. Yeah, people go, oh, I'd love to relive your childhood. I'm like, no way. If I had to go back to any age, I'd go back to being 28. I'd say, go back to 28 and start. Maybe they're 28 or 42. I'm now 45. So maybe, maybe, uh, but I definitely wouldn't be a teenager. But um, it's very specific. I'd love to ask questions about that. About 28. Hmm. Why 28? I don't know. I felt like at 28, I was still young, but had enough sort of experience. Yeah. And I think it might be related back to like Steiner, you know, Rudolf Steiner. So Rudolf Steiner was a Austrian architect, but he was also a bit of a, um, I suppose maybe a little, little bit of a kind of a mystic as well. He actually wrote a book that I'm reading at the moment on sleep dreams and dying. Yeah. And um, well, he didn't write the book. He gave a series of lectures back around 1912, 1913, um, on this topic and he kind of fused a little bit of mysticism as well in religion but like Carl Jung in, in Carl Jung's later years so kind of similar but Steiner believed you might have heard of Steiner schools it's the same guy but he was actually an architect that was his profession but he got into all these other things but he actually believes that the, the body or the soul develops in seven year cycles and so that every seven years like you know well I think this has been shown in medic medicine as well it's your whole body like we basically 
you know, every cell kind of turns over in seven years. Oh yeah. But in every seven years, like seven year development. And um, it's really interesting because around probably the age of 42, I got very much into philosophy theology, and theology. And um, he says as well that a man shouldn't basically study philosophy until he's 42 uh, because the conscious soul emerges then. But also this kind of lines up what Plato said as well. And Plato said the same thing that basically, you know, a man shouldn't study or a person shouldn't study philosophy till in their forties. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I, I don't know. Maybe that's uh, maybe that's kind of just, you know, I'm, I'm reverse engineering now, filling in the banks. But twenty eight, I felt like I was still young enough, had enough time up my sleeve. I wasn't quite thirty, but I wasn't in my early twenties, and I just felt like that was a good age. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and it is in the seven year cycles, but I don't know. It's twenty eight. I felt like anyway. So that was a big digression there. Um. So what was my question? Um, what was I asking? Oh, yeah. With these uh, adolescents, uh, we don't get them enough respect like um, we do with shift workers because shift workers are earning money and we go let them sleep in and so on. But some of these adolescents are under enormous pressure, especially in their last two or three years of high school, because maybe they want to do really well at school or maybe their parents are pushing them to do really well at school. We see a lot of parents putting pressure on kids to be like, be a doctor, be a lawyer, be this, be that. And so it puts a lot of pressure on kids. I remember like when I was at high school, some kids were med study for eight hours a day. So basically they're getting home at four o'clock and they were at home studying until midnight. Now we didn't start school till about 10 past nine in the morning in Ireland, but that's a that's a long time to be sitting there hitting the books. And the parents were like forced them like to be, you know, aeronautical engineers, you know, doctors, whatever it might be. It's quite stressful. And they were quite, quite odd kids, you know, after a while because of this, I think, as well. But if kids are if these adolescents aren't getting enough sleep. And their sleep has been curtailed by different types of activities. What's going to be the impact then on their actual academic performance? Because I get the feeling like you can't just keep, you know, pushing and pushing and pushing and having no sleep or recovery. It's a bit like an athlete overtraining. They're just not going to be able to hit the hit the metrics. So what's going to happen with these kids in terms these adolescents in terms of their of their grades? Is there kind of like a diminishing point of return, or is actually just getting through it going to be the best thing to do? We generally find that the students who get less sleep will do less well um, in any kind of test that they do, basically. Um, it's As far as I know, it's been shown across all subjects. So from everything from, you know, English to science, we find that students who are not sleeping or are not sleeping as much or going to bed later are going to be the ones who are doing not as well. So it's... It's hard because obviously study is really important, but if you are studying to the point where you're not sleeping, if you're staying up Mm. really late to be studying or getting up really early to be studying, then you're going to potentially not be doing as well in school. So a couple of reasons for that. One is we need sleep to be able to remember things. Um, And the other one is we need sleep to be able to pay attention. So there's no point studying if you can't remember stuff, but there's also no point sitting in a classroom if you're not able to pay attention and comprehend what the teacher is saying or trying to teach you. And the other one is if you're reading a, a, a test or whatever it is that you're supposed to be reading and you're so tired that those words are not making sense to you, you're going to be giving the wrong answers to those questions because you're interpreting them incorrectly. So it's really important to be sleeping. And I think, you know, burning the candle at both ends regardless of how old you are is not going to get you as far as 
having a bit of balance between that study and that sleep. Mm. And then for those people then who, and I'm not sure if you spoke about this in the paper and I can't remember, but I'd be interested to know what you think or what your thoughts are on this. For kids then that might, and I keep saying kids, it's just adolescents, for adolescents that are pushing through a term or so on, do they have like, do they have a bit of a kind of a sleep debt recovery or a, a rebound end of the time off or then just, you know, have these big periods? Because I just, I even noticed myself like last year, the last three or four months of 2022 were quite busy and I took two and a half weeks off of Christmas. And oh my God, for the first four or five days, it was like in like 10, 11 hour sleeps and it was magical. It was absolutely brilliant, but it was just like, I was just going to bed nine, nine at night and, you know, sleeping right through till six or seven the next day. And I was like, this is crazy. I just really need to sleep. And then I was often having a nap during the day. So cumulatively, I was having 10 to 11 hours in a 24 hour period. And that sort of took me about a week to 10 days to get over that. Does this same thing happen with adolescents? Yeah, the same thing happens with kids. We always find the first week of the holidays, they're sleeping much more than they would be during the school term or in, you know, mm. next two to how many weeks there are of the holidays. It's, there's a really cool paper, um, not by me, sadly. They looked <laughs> at, no, it's a really awesome paper. I love it. Um, they looked at, they had different groups of kids and they put them in this boarding school, which they essentially used as a sleep lab. Um, and they restricted their sleep for five nights to simulate a school week. So not getting enough sleep because they want to go to bed later and have to wake up early in the morning for uh, school. And then they gave them two recovery night sleeps to simulate a weekend. And then they put yeah. them back on the school sleep schedule for a couple of nights after that. And basically what they found was the teenagers performance massively declined across those first five nights mm. and then they improved across the weekend but then back onto those first couple of nights of going back onto that school schedule they essentially started off where they ended on the Friday so if you think about that cumulatively that if a school term is 13 weeks roughly I think 12 to 13 weeks you can imagine that doing that to kids over and over and over again for 13 weeks is going to have a really strong impact on their performance, on their mood, on their mental health, on, you know, their sleepiness. So you can totally imagine then that that first week of holidays, they're going to need to be sleeping so much more to be able to make up for everything that they've done to themselves over those mm. 13 weeks. Yeah, which is interesting because I just thought about then, you know, what often happens in particular summer holidays is, Let's go on a holiday. Finish yeah. school on a Friday. A Friday night will fly out. It's like, oh man, it's probably the worst thing you could do. Yeah. I know I'll even like from my wife and I, you know, and we don't have kids, but we, we've probably nothing to complain about, obviously. But if we have, if we go on a holiday, particularly a big holiday like overseas, we'll try and finish work on a Thursday or work from home on a Friday, do a half day and just get at least one or two good nights sleep before we fly out on a Saturday where years ago, like, right, we'll work right up until five o'clock Friday, and then we'll fly out like nine o'clock Friday night. And you'd just be like dead to the world, you know, just trying to jam in a few extra days. And it's a false economy because you're just ruining yourself anyway. So you might as well get some sleep before you go on holiday. <laughs> so the other part then that we see a lot of stuff talk being spoken about in the last few years in this, in, in, in the, um, I suppose, in the, in the popular media about, um, a lot of the generation coming through now, and I always get mixed up with these terms. I know we've got like baby boomers, we've got Xers, we've got Ys, we've got Zs and millennials and so on. But I think the kids getting born, and I think there might be Zs, it might be 
around sort of 2000 and so on, maybe even a bit later now. I heard another name the other day. That's why I'm kind of hesitating here. I heard another categorization on them. Um, I don't know what they're called. But anyway, kids maybe now they're like maybe 13, 14, 15. And even since about 2010 or 12, we see a lot of work, um, particularly by Jonathan Haidt in America, who's a psychologist, talking about the coddling of the American mind. We see um, Johan Harry has brought some books on stolen focus. Uh, we see depression, anxiety increasing. So we see a lot of these common mental health disorders, depression, anxiety, social interaction. People are more kind of insular. They're living their life through social media. Um, and then we see this kind of fearful um, sort of thing happening in the world where people don't want to go out. <clears throat> and then some other work we're, we're, we're actually kicking off on, on the relationship between dreams and death anxiety. Um, one of my co-researchers, Rachel Menzies, who wrote a book called Mortals, actually um, recently in a conversation, we were having a conversation about this, is that a lot of young people have death anxiety, 18 to 25. So it feels like this young group, let's say between 12 to 25, very fearful, lots of depression, lots of anxiety. Are you seeing that in the in the literature that you're looking at, Alex? And what's your thoughts on or any evidence on how that may be affecting um, people's sleep as well? So I think there are two answers to this question. There, or there are two possible answers to this question. So one is that we are seeing increases in anxiety and depression, which I think is probably very likely. Um, you mentioned social media, and I'll, you know, social media or certain platforms on social media are essentially highlight reels. So I'm a normal person sitting at home. I am, you know, I have fat rolls. I like a donut and some ice cream every once in a while. So if I'm scrolling through someone's social media and I'm seeing highly edited pictures and their life is, you know, a 24 hour a day holiday and I'm sitting here at work, it's going to be, you know, kind of depressing potentially mm. for me. Um, but the other thing is we also have a greater appreciation for these, um, these types of disorders and there's more education around these disorders as well. Um, and less stigma around them too. So we're likely to have higher rates of reporting and higher rates of people actually going for help um, when they're experiencing these disorders too. So it's potentially a combination of, yes, there has been increases, but also, yes, we are starting to know more about them. So, you know, they're going to be higher because we just are seeking help more often. They're really intricately linked with sleep. There's a bi-directional relationship between sleep and depression and sleep and anxiety. So we know that if we don't get enough sleep, we're more likely to be anxious. We're more likely to be depressed because we can't deal with the stresses that are being thrown at us all day, every day. And even if they're totally normal stresses that we would normally be able to deal with really well, if we're having a, a really bad day in terms of we're exhausted and we don't know how to deal with things, we're more likely to chuck a hissy fit and we're more likely to feel really bad about things. When that becomes chronic, when it happens over multiple nights or multiple weeks, that's when we start to see these issues with anxiety and depression. We also know, particularly with depression, but also with anxiety, if I'm super depressed or I'm super anxious, then it's going to be much harder for me to fall asleep or to stay asleep or I'm going to be waking up really early in the morning. And so it's actually kind of a vicious cycle of I'm depressed so I can't sleep, but then I can't sleep so I'm depressed. Yeah, so, yeah they're very, very intricately linked. Mm. So, Alex, we've spoken about lots of things that happen to teenagers. 
spoken about lots of things that may be impacting their sleep. The big question is, the big finale mm -hmm. is what can we do about it? So if there's people out there listening that are, you know, parents or their kids are approaching this, you know, parents of adolescents or their kids are growing up and they're worried about this. Um, what what can we do? What what can what can parents do to basically reduce these risk risk factors for their adolescents? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so a really big one is routine. So our bodies are essentially really big clocks. And if you have a routine that you do every day, then your body will learn that that time is when you're supposed to be doing that thing. So setting a routine for your teenager or your child and letting them know, you know, this is when we're going to bed. We're going to have a wind down period half an hour, an hour before that time so that they learn and their bodies learn that that's when we're going to start to relax. That's when we're going to start to wind down. And then we know that that's sleep time and that's going to make it easier for them to fall asleep. And the same thing with wake up time as well. You mentioned before sleeping in on weekends until about two o'clock. I totally appreciate that at the end of the week, kids and teenagers need to catch up on that sleep. But if you wake up at two o'clock on a Sunday, you're not going to have enough time to build up a sufficient sleep debt by Sunday night to go to sleep on time to have enough sleep on Sunday night to start your week off well on the Monday. Oh, so yeah. And you just brought a bad memory for me there because I used to, you're dead right. And then I used to start off Monday morning with triple mats, yeah. triple mats, three classes back to backs of mathematics. It that was like horrible. torture, torture. <laughs> yeah, that sounds really not fun. <laughs> it wasn't. <laughs> um, so yeah, having that routine is really important. And my advice, and again, I'm not a parent, not really going to give parenting advice, but the more involved you can get your child or your adolescent in that process, the more likely they're going to be to want to go along with it and less mm. likely they're going to be to push back. So sit down and talk to them, get them involved, say to them, what would your what would you like your wind down to be? What looks like a good wind down for you? What would help you to start to relax before bed? We recommend for the hour before bed, no electronic devices. Good luck with that. Parents of adolescents, I'm not going to pretend that I know how to deal with that because when I was a teenager, my mum tried to take my phone off me and I would get back every single night. Sorry, mum, if you're listening to this, I think that's the first time that I've admitted that. Um, so yeah, good luck, but that's a really good way to ensure that kids and teenagers are, are more likely to be able to fall asleep because that bright light in their face can make them feel more alert. So it's going to prolong that awake period before falling asleep. Um, things like having a warm bath before bed or a warm shower can really help because when we start to fall asleep, we, um, we cool down essentially. And so warming ourselves up before we cool down can accelerate that process and help us fall asleep. We talked about anxiety and depression, and I think the best advice that I have there is try to work out what's going to help your teenager or your child relax. So it might be a to-do list, so writing down all the things that they have to do the next day to help them, you know, stop stressing about it while they're sleeping. They know exactly what they have to do the next day. It might be sitting down and chatting with the family. It might be talking to their friends, whatever it's going to be for that child. 
again, we're coming back to individual differences here. So it's really about getting the, the child or the teenager involved in working out what that process is, what's going to help them to relax and feel ready for bed, set that up an hour before bedtime, go to bed at the same time every night, wake up at roughly the same time every morning. There can be, you know, an hour, an hour and a half on weekends sleep in, but trying to, you know, kind of be on top of that so that it doesn't yeah. um, extend too late into the day. Yeah, so minimise noise, like sleep onset and wake up variances. The other thing on that as well, Alex, and I think everything you said there is really practical, <laughs> even for adults, like not even for adolescents, it's a very mm. practical advice for everybody. The other thing as well is I would view parents as being leaders. And I would also say to parents that think about in your own job, if your leader is telling you to do a certain task, to stay till a certain time, but you see the leader going out, taking extra coffee breaks, going out for a cigarette, maybe leaving early on a Friday to play golf and have a few drinks while you're at work, you're going to get quite pissed off. And you're going to go, oh, the leader just tells me to do this, but he or she does none of this. So as a parent as well, you have to view yourself as being a leader. And so if you're telling the kid to have routine or the adolescent to have routine, go to bed and get up at the same time, you need to exhibit those same behaviors as well. You can't be sitting up sort of drinking wine till 12 o'clock on a Monday night, watching Netflix and going one more episode, one more episode, and then jumping into bed and getting up at half five next morning, complaining about being tired. And then the next night going to bed at eight o'clock because you want to catch up because your sleep onset variance is all over the place and you've got social jet lag. So you need to practice what you preach. This kind of retort that adults have. Well, I'm the adult. When you're an adult, you can do whatever you like. But once you're here, live under my rules, you know? That just creates friction and drama, I think, around the sleep. And then what kids do is, the, an adolescence, is to have very little to control in their life. And the two biggest things I think they can control is sleep and nutrition. And that's why we see a lot of kids doing stuff around food, but being defiant. I'm not eating this. I'm not eating that. Um, and I think the same around sleep as well. So to, as adolescents, you've got very little in your control. And these things are in your control. So I would say for parents is think about as being a leader as well. And you need to demonstrate those visible leadership behaviors as well um, if you want good sleep in your household as well. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. You lead by example, and particularly mm. we're talking about adolescence now because, you know, that's kind of my area. But you lead by example and your children, when they're younger, will model your behavior. So if you want to start them early, it's a really good idea for you to start having those health behaviors as early as possible so that your child will look at you and think, you know, mom or dad or whoever are healthy and I want to be like them. So it's a really excellent point that you raise. It should be a family activity. Yeah. Regardless of the child's age. And, and the other thing just on this before we wrap up today is that, and this stuff has come out from, I heard David, Dr. Uh, David, Dr. Dr. David Cunnington, who's a fellow co-researcher on another project I'm on, and he's been on the podcast before, and he's got a great podcast called Sleep Hub. Um, and David spoke about this around sort of PTSD and personality disorders and, you know, these type of issues that may impact or um, people's sleep as adults. But he did, he did speak about in one of his episodes that this could be back from as being a time as a kid so if you associate negative outcomes with the sleep environment such as being like woken up in the middle of the night you know loud noises so again this gets back to this visible leadership if you're in bed and your parents are up like drinking until two o'clock in the morning playing music it's not conducive to good sleep so again it's about you know getting these sleep habits and behaviors right from the start because if you do it um early enough they're going to have positive ramifications into their later life 
And a bit like genetics and epigenetics, you can actually, you can have a, a positive causal chain into the future as well with this stuff. So, you know, we're trying to negate all these other negative health out, outcomes as well. Absolutely. Just on that, I know you said we're about to wrap up, but if this um, is relevant to the discussion about depression and anxiety. We see that most people or adolescence is a really vulnerable time for mm. depression and anxiety. And we see a lot of the time the people who had depression and anxiety during adolescence are more likely to have that recur during adulthood. So that the sleep and all of those health behaviors around depression and anxiety are so important in adolescence because it's such a vulnerable stage, not just during adolescence, but because if they had it during adolescence, they're more likely to have it as an adult, you know, again and again and again. So mm. if we can protect them as children and adolescents, then we're setting them up for success as, you know, adults. So it's it's such an important stage of life, childhood and adolescence. And a lot of our health behaviors through those stages are so relevant to our health and well-being as adults so yeah it's it's really hard and I don't I don't envy parents of adolescents but if we can start making some really healthy changes or we can set them up for success before we need to make healthy changes it's going to have long long-term lifelong impacts Excellent. I think that's a great place to finish, Alex. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast today. Thank if you. people want to get in touch with you, Alex, they want to follow your work, maybe they want to give you a couple of million dollars to do research. How can they get in contact with you? <laughs> uh, so I'm happy to take emails, alex.agostini at unisa.edu.au or I am alexagostini3 on Twitter. Yeah. Who's one and two? I have no idea. <laughs> do some research on that this afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> excellent thank you very much Alex really appreciate you coming on thank you so much